Standing up on a surfboard and whitewash close to the shore and for the first time might not sound like a life-changing moment for a man who's known as the voice of action sports. But for this X Games host, it was as extreme for him as anything he'd ever covered on television. I knew I couldn't go back. Changes your you just put it out there. She said you've got less than a year to live. She's done even deeper. Luck is the residue of design. Nobody else was doing it, so why couldn't I? That was the turning point. Welcome to the Bucket Podcast with Phil Cogan. Every week I talk to mavericks, disruptors, and innovators. People who ditch the excuses, swerve off the predictable road, and epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. Sal Masekela is the voice of action sports and is best known for his work presenting NBC's Red Bull Signature Series and NBC's Summer and Winter X Games. Sal is also a journalist, producer, and musician. He's the son of the late great jazz icon Hugh Masekela, and at an early age, Sal, a native New Yorker, was introduced by his father to the world of music in jazz halls all over Manhattan. He was also taken around the world on tour as a teenager, including a very memorable Graceland tour with Paul Simon. Sal's broken many stereotypes in his life and career, and says his goal today is to inspire teens who are the most vulnerable, to believe in themselves through action sports. It's hard to pin down an action man like Sal, but I did manage to catch up with him in Los Angeles to hear some of his amazing stories. Thanks for fighting your way all the way from Venice to Santa Monica, right on the border Listen, Venice and Santa Monica. It's still, still travel season. Yeah. So that 1.9-mile drive from my house to yours, to- given our, our present tourist weight of traffic, was still very real. It was still a full 11, 12 minutes for one and a half miles. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. And you consider that Bannister, what was he, the first person to run the sub four minute mile? Yes. Ran it sub four minutes? Right. We're still, we still not at that speed me, in LA with traffic. Yeah, 12 in a car. It's ridiculous. It's usually right around the end of August, beginning of September, that I lose my embracing California mm-hmm. attitude and I see the tourist families, and in my heart, I want them to go home. And I feel bad. Have you ever said anything? Like, no, I've never, no, I've never said it, but I say it in my heart. Yeah. <laughs> Every day. And I feel bad because I know why they're here. This place is amazing. Well, I, um, I know why too, but you're absolutely right. And you know, I know you're a man from extreme sports and love extreme sports, but you want to talk about an extreme activity these birds these scooters these electric scooters that are making their way around on the beaches it is out of control the birds and the lime have literally changed the entire scope of los angeles and i don't know if we're just old and bitter or <laughs> they just suck i think it's a little hybrid of both of like yeah you kids but then i see like grown the, when I really feel bad is when I see like grown, grown people, like people in their 50s and 60s yeah. on the scooters, like, and I'm like, damn it, are you telling me I need to rethink my life? Because I right. don't want to. We do sound like the guys that we're we didn't guys. like when we were. We're the old guys on the Muppets. When we were like the young guys in the 80s trying new adventure sports, we, this is how people were talking about us, trying new and different things, don't see, you think? I grew up with skateboarder. Yeah. Skateboarding was a lifestyle. Yes not a, just a means of transportation. So, and because the barrier to entry was that it was hard, mm-hmm. not everyone was gonna skateboard because you're gonna fall a lot. 
uh, didn't have a motor. You couldn't just come and pick one up. Like you had to build a relationship with your skateboard. So because of that, I didn't, people just didn't like it because it was weird. Mm. Um, and it went against culture and there was a whole style of dress and music that came from it. And like this reinterpreting of how the streets and rails and ledges uh, and, 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 and architecture was, was being remade as this form of, of sport and activity mm. and, and expression. Um, I would never put the, sco- the electric scooters in the same breath. No, it's not. I mean, it's, that's the thing is the accessibility. Anybody can do it. Anyone can do it. Yeah. And that's what makes me mad. Yeah. Because I like, to, I like to walk. Yeah. I like to ride my skateboard, but also I like to walk. And now people look at me strangely like, look He's at that walking. poor man. What's wrong with his legs? He's mm-hmm. using them. <laughs> yeah. how, old, how old are you, Sal? I'm 46. 46. Okay, so we're pretty close in age. Um, so, you, yeah, you remember that whole 80s era. What drew you to, you mentioned skateboarding. What drew, drew you to that culture? What was it about that culture that made you want to be a part of it? When I moved to um, New England from New York, I was around... 14 years old mm-hmm. and it was a real culture shock I grew up in New York City I grew up in a really multicultural environment inspired by the arts and I suddenly moved to a very working class New England community um, where there weren't really anybody there wasn't really anybody who looked like me so diversity wasn't really a thing and I experienced sort of very interesting layers of ignorance based on like lack of knowledge and then just sort of like weird racism. And in a school that where I kind of felt like a a Martian at times, it was ironically the skateboarders, the four or five super punk rock skateboarders who had like, you know, a thousand safety pins in their pants and mohawks and dressed weird, who were the most embracing to me. They were the kids who made me feel like I'd hang out with them. And this one kid, Scott Forbes, one day, um, asked me if I wanted to learn how to skateboard. And I was like, yeah. And he gave me a skateboard. And I, would, I didn't dress like them, but we loved the skateboarding thing, and they'd give me magazines, and I fell in love with skateboarding. And so that's how I first got skateboarding was as like this way of acceptance into this town where I didn't really know how to fit in. Then two and a half years later, my family moved to Southern California to Carlsbad, the North County of San Diego. And it's the, the literally like the cultural base of the skateboarding and surfing industry as a lifestyle. So now this is not just something that people do or the few kids in my school who lived it, but like it was the norm. That's what, that's what you did. Um, and I f- just fell in love with it. And then six months later, discovered snowboarding. Um, started snowboarding uh, in the winter of 1988, and that was it. I, like, literally, those three sports sort of took over my life. Tell me what it was like for you the first time you rode a wave. Because that must have happened, what, when you would have been around 16 or somewhere yeah, around there? Yeah, 16 and a half. Um, the first time that I paddled out and caught a wave, it was the first week that I was at Carlsbad High School, and this kid named Justin Ive invited me over to his house, gave me a wetsuit and a board. I put the wetsuit on backwards. Everybody laughed at me because I just assumed that anything with a zipper went upwards, but that wasn't <laughs> like, how it goes. 
So I walk out of the bathroom, like, I'm ready to go. And then like, everyone just falls to the ground. Um, but, you know, we get down to the beach and it, the waves were, 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 were pretty nice size. It was like four to six feet that day. And they just said, look, you're not going to make it all the way out. So, you know, find yourself in the whitewash. They explained to me what that meant after the wave breaks into the white water. Turn around, paddle for that. And they gave me a little drill on how to pop up. Well, little did they know that I was diligent and determined. And um, I was a really good swimmer. And so when I found myself getting destroyed the first time that a wave hit me, I literally was like, oh, I'm good. Like, no problem. So I didn't stress. And so by the time the set had set waves had stopped rolling in, I kept on paddling out. And these guys turn around and they're like, what are you, how'd you, what are you doing out here? I'm, I can't even like, I'm like splaying on the board, like in, impossible for me to sit and they, they were in shock. And the next thing I just see the horizon go black. Now I'm intimidated because now here's a real, like I'm in the lineup. It's a here's, wall. Here's a wall of water coming at me that I've never seen before. And I remember just saying, like, what do I do? And they were all paddling excited, like just turn around and paddle. And I like turned and just put my head down in this thing. I just remember the, being the, the weightlessness of that feeling of the wave picking you up at the top, which was just foreign and then shooting you down the bottom and then not being able to see and then all of a sudden like bouncing and holding on to the board and now I'm riding the wave on my stomach and I'm like, this is insane. I can't even believe this is happening. And then I remember the lesson that like, okay, pop up to your feet. And I was like, okay, I guess I got time to do this thing. And I popped up and I stood up for like 10 seconds. On your very first wave. On my very first try. Very first wave. Very first wave in the whitewash, 10 seconds. That's ugly, stink, stink bug style as they call it. But those 10 seconds felt like 10 minutes. It was like super slow. Everything was really peaceful. It was like the heavens opened up. Something was poured down from the, from the earth and my whole life changed in that moment. I remember falling, coming back up, screaming, ah! and then that was it. And if it wasn't for surfing or snowboarding or skateboarding, I wouldn't even be sitting in this chair right now. Like it ended up leading me into my entire career. This whole idea that you gravitated towards sports where you were different from everybody else, meaning it was a different culture, right? I mean, it's, it's not exactly something that you probably thought would ever happen when you were a young kid, I can't imagine. No. I mean, the first time I saw, actually physically saw surfing yeah. in real life was I was on tour with my dad. Um, my dad was a trumpet player by the yeah, name Yeah, tell of us about your dad just so we set that up because yeah. he's such an important role model. So my father was an incredible musician, um, singer, activist, flugelhorn player by the name of Hugh Masekela. He came from South Africa as a young political exile during the apartheid era in 1959 and basically spent 30 years living around the world, making music and being an activist for change um, with the full belief in his heart that apartheid was going to end. And our relationship was interesting. Him and my mother split when I was young my weekends with him were like in jazz clubs. Mm. Um, I was as a as a five six year old. Like my my earliest memories with my father are in the club, like at the Village Gate or Mikel's um, at two in the morning, 
as he's playing the second set and sitting with adults as they're grooving to him and meeting, you know, people like Miles Davis and Stevie Wonder and just thinking it was perfectly normal, you know, to hang out with jazz men that smoked African bush cigarettes before they went uh, on stage. And that was my upbringing. Um, my relationship with him was based on on the, on the music. In 1987, he had been working with Paul Simon on the Graceland album. And um, he helped facilitate it, make it possible for Paul Simon to get into South Africa and make this record, which was a bit of like a special forces mission. Mm. As, you know, during the apartheid era, it was very much frowned upon for American artists, international artists, to go to South Africa and do work in, in the hopes of putting pressure on the South African government to end the racist apartheid system. There's a fantastic documentary out, I, I believe it's called Under African Skies, mm -hmm. where that scenario is, is uh, documented and where Paul Simon talks about the pressures uh, and, and some of the pushback that he got just thinking about connecting with musicians in Africa. So if people haven't seen that, that would yeah. be a great way to understand your dad's involvement. And also just, I, I had no idea. I remember the album came out. I remember where I was when I heard the first songs, uh, Diamonds on the Soles of My Shoes. And I, I had no idea of the ramifications of that musical collaboration. Yeah. And my, my father's idea when Paul approached him, which he talks about in the movie, was... My dad always thought that the richness of South African culture and of its arts and its pageantry for people to be able to textually feel, hear, touch Africa, so especially South Africa in this case, would, would move people to be like, why is this apartheid thing a thing? Right. So the idea of like not exposing the culture and South Africa just being this isolated place my father always thought that that was, he didn't, he, he was, ne my dad was an activist, but he never was political. So just if it was a position where he disagreed on with the ANC, the African National Congress. And so he found himself in a very interesting place yeah. when he basically endorsed Paul, helped him to get there, and then backed him up on tour uh, alongside Miriam McCabe and Lady Smith Black Mambazo. And that tour, which at the time was, one of the biggest, it was the biggest album at the time and the biggest tour in the world. It blew up. I mean, it, it just it blew up the planet. The album just. Moscow sold out in massive stadiums all over, and people suddenly were feeling and being touched by South African energy, roots, and rhythm. It and put South Africa on the map for a lot of people who did not understand that something that we associate with the. Uh, you know, with the civil rights movement in America was happening, happening in real time in, in South real Africa. time and being talked about on stage mm. in between songs in the context of these songs that you're hearing, whether they be protest songs or songs about mourning mm -hmm. or just songs about the beauty of South Africa, weaving this this story and this tapestry to, for people to see and feel mm. it. It was it was powerful. It, it put a, it gave a voice. It was as if you could hear people calling out and it, and I know that Paul Simon got a lot of criticism for almost stealing that culture, almost like you know taking it and then making it his own. And yeah. And I know, uh, if I'm not mistaken, your dad was like, "No, no, no. He is just he's a vessel to help us 
have a voice. Yeah, my dad was like, no, we are using him. Yeah. And he is, use, he is allowing himself to be used. A vessel, right? As a vessel. Yeah. And, you know, we, I went to see my dad perform this and was excited to see him. I hadn't seen him in a while. I was at Madison Square Garden. We came down from New England to see my dad. And um, a couple of days, they were playing back-to-back shows. We had an, an incredible time. And at a certain point, Paul Simon says to my mom, you know, I think it'd be really good if we took Salema, that's my full name, uh, on the road with us on tour. Well, and you would have been what, about 15? 15, 15, 15 and a half. Um, he's like, I'm gonna take my son Harper and I, I will personally take responsibility for your son to make sure that nothing happens to him. This is gonna be one of the most eye-opening and best experiences for him in his life and him and his father will get to catch up. And, now, and if my dad you, had asked, yeah. my mother would have been like, absolutely not. Right. But because Paul Simon asked, right. I just remember her face being frozen like, oh, well. <laughs> and my dad's sitting there in disbelief. Because I remember when, when Paul asked my dad if he said, because he had talked to me about it first. And I was like, yeah, yeah. in a heartbeat. <laughs> and he's like, well, I'm going to talk to your dad. And my dad laughed at Paul. said, there's no way his She's mother not. his mother will never go for it man you think i'm you think i'm difficult man she's mean she's mean <laughs> and um you know paul with his little wonderful his way way yeah did the impossible to the point where my mother convinced my stepfather sold him and um i found myself a 15 and a half year old roadie on the biggest music tour in the world and excused from school for three months with given homework um, to complete on the road. Did it, did it connect you with Africa in a way that it maybe hadn't, where you hadn't maybe felt as African? Did it, did it open up that side of your... It was, it was definitely the beginning to me getting in touch with my South Africanness. You know, the care um, that the fellas in, in Ladysmith Black Mombazo and Miriam Makeba took with me yeah. to explain to me more about my father's homeland, more about why my father was the way he was, what he was going through. Um, I didn't fully come to understand his homesickness um, and why he was sort of a, this musical nomad who didn't want to put his roots down anywhere and didn't take citizenship anywhere. Um, I didn't really get a sense of that until that tour. And I really understood what was at stake. That was the first time that I really understood what was at stake with apartheid. Like, I was like, oh, this is, this is why us, me, I'm a product of this. Oh, it was powerful. It was really, really powerful. I got to know my dad in a way that I hadn't yet. And to see him as a really strong voice who took no shit from anyone especially the press when it came to them trying to judge him right um those were masterful performances where, where was he during that time was he able to uh go back to south africa at no. that time no my father didn't go home for 30 years he and could that's not what go broke to his africa. heart huh yeah so oh. he was living heartbroken he would have been arrested had he gone back arrested and or worse yeah because so, he was he was a a, a. He, was a, he was a dissident. He was a person who spoke out against the government. He was a person who was actively collaborating to end 
the present political system. Yeah. Um, his music wasn't even, you weren't allowed to, to play his records in South Africa, so people had to smuggle them, smuggle them in. They were like, they were banned, it was banned music, you know. Um, God, it's just incredible, right? Because there was, there was uh, I mean, it happened a lot in the Caribbean too, where uh, a lot of that music had hidden messages, like Calypso was, it was such an expression for the struggling people of the West Indies to speak out against people who were, you know, running the businesses and where who they were working for, and to speak out against the government policy, that sort of thing. Yeah. But do you do you remember when your dad went back? Was that was that something that y you remember? Yeah, I my dad went back in 1990. Um, it was when the clerk, when the, it was when South Africa was at a real cooking point, and President de Klerk realized like okay this country might burn mm. i'm going to do the most unpopular thing and try to figure out what peace might look like started making his his deals and conversations um and negotiations with mandela essentially um and in turn once he realized that it looked like he had a pretty good hand on things and they were going to end apartheid um started making openings for the expats like Miriam Makeba, like my father uh, and other political dissidents to make their way back into South Africa. And as soon as my dad knew he was going to be okay, 1990, packed everything up, moved back to South Africa, moved back to Johannesburg. And that's where he lived out his days? Yeah. And, and sad to say your dad passed away at the beginning of, of 2018. January 23rd. Well, I, I know because we worked together on National Geographic Explorer and yeah. I know you were uh, I think you might have been on assignment or something at the time it must have been very difficult for you yeah it was um, it was very difficult it, it was tough it is tough yeah it will continue to be tough but it's a process his music it, it lives on it lives uh, on um, it, and it, when you think of your dad so what what are the, the the biggest life lessons you think he left with you? What are the things that you respect him for the most? I respect my dad for his incredible lack of cultural chauvinism. My father, as much as he was fighting for South Africa and for apartheid to end, he was passionately curious about everyone else and their cultures and their immense contributions to the world. You, Sal, you said something to me that was really interesting. We had a drink in New York and we were talking about racism and the definition of racism. And at some point in the conversation, I, I think I mentioned to you that I was one of the only white kids in my class growing up when I grew up in Antigua. <clears throat> and at certain points in my life, I lived there for about eight years, I experienced what I called racism. Right. Right. Uh, where someone didn't know me and who just judged me for the color of my skin and, you know, called me honky or whatever. And you corrected me and you said, well, it's not that's not racism. That's someone being prejudiced. And I was just wondering if you could touch on what you meant by that, because racism is something that's thrown out a lot. We hear it being talked about all the time. Yeah. Explain to me why you corrected me when I said that. I think racism puts people in a position where they are affected economically, mm -hmm. 
they're affected in in their ability to live like everyone else it involves rules and systems put in place so that a certain group or race of people remain in this in this place and space and know their place prejudice and bias is something that is based on ignorance mm -hmm. and there can be elements of, of, of racism that affect that but prejudice um, is, is more based on ignorance and people not liking or deciding to treat people a certain way um, because of their skin color so it's or more their religion. superficial it's far more superficial right and and is something that happens between people racism mm -hmm. is is literally like deep -seated. is deep-seated and systemically placed yep. and I think that to your point people are throwing around racism like it's you know a wild card in right. all these things and for for people at the at the extreme far right they couldn't be more excited right because if you can dilute the, the thing the actual real thing right and make it something else that now everyone thinks that they have access to well then it's not a thing anymore and that's how you get shifts to like wait we were talking about this thing that was never going to happen and now suddenly we find ourselves in this place where huh these are the new rules right um, I'm lucky I'm a first-generation American from two parents who came from some really serious situations you know my mom from Haiti my dad from South Africa that are epic examples of the failure of people coming in settling and, 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 and dominating other cultures my parents easily could have raised me with distrust um, and with an idea that like it was our sovereignty first and everyone else second you know they could have raised me with that and my father and mother's compassion for everyone else and firm firm ability to put people in their place but when they did encounter wrong thinking uh, or or racism or but the, the real ability to always empower me with compassion and curiosity about everyone else no matter who they prayed to who they slept with yeah. or what they look like I think it speaks to why you are a curious person I think it speaks to why you have maybe blazed your own trail because as you said before it wasn't necessarily you didn't you weren't seeing other black people doing these types of things but you were following your heart and so clearly your mom and your dad told you to be your own person and you have been your whole life yeah I mean you blazed your own trail a hundred percent because um, you could have easily said, oh, man, <laughs> I'm, then, I'm different. I don't want to be here. Like your dad, when he came here, he could have been like, oh, I'm out of here. But Yeah, and there were moments at each time where it was like, I don't want to be here. Get me back to New York City. Like, I hate this place. These, I can't stand that these people, like, treat me like some, like I'm different. And then it was figuring out a way to at least there's got to be some layer in here that I can exist in and thrive even if this isn't my ideal situation. What are some of the tricks you've learned, Sal? Because there's so many people that do experience prejudice and there's so many people who are feeling like they're fighting and that they're different. So what did you, what, what have you learned? What are some lessons that you've learned that you could share to other 16 year old kids who are feeling like on the outer? I went through a period when I first moved to California where I'd be quiet 
when people would make racist jokes around me. It was easier. It felt horrible. I'd be dying inside. But I went through a period, probably for like a year, where I just I just wanted to fit in. And it hurt so much. And I remember the day that I finally said no more. Someone had made a joke about like it was late at night and I was one of the last guys out and they'd sent something to the effect of like, we were looking for you to smile so we could see you. Oh boy. And I just remember just barking, just being like, you can't talk to me like that. And here's why. And then I just read them out a laundry list of all the racist shit that they said or did every day. And then that wasn't gonna stand anymore. And then they would be like, but you know, we're not trying to be, but you are. And from now on, every time, I'm gonna let you know. I know you guys don't dislike me. I know that you're uncomfortable because you don't know anything about me and you haven't chosen to like wanna know. So this is how we're gonna talk about it. I mean, there were people who would say to me like, hey man, you know, it's really cool that you surf and you do what we do. Because, you know, you're not like a regular black guy. You're more like us. Mm. Changing the mindset of those people sitting in that room can happen in a teachable moment like that one time. One time. This is a thing that takes yeah. years. Um, so you, you stand up on a surfboard. You fall in love with, you're falling in love with uh, skateboarding, snowboarding. And, and I just want to understand how Sal Masakala becomes the voice of of the X Games, I mean, and becomes the a, a voice and an expert of extreme sports. How do you go from being this <laughs> the kid last from guy New to York the party. to New England to yeah. you know you come California? Yeah, I last guy in the club and suddenly owns the club. Yeah, basically, I so I didn't go to college. I when it when this when went I went to the school of life. I went to the school of life. Yeah. And much to the chagrin of my family, I worked every job under the sun. I got a job at uh, Transworld Snowboarding and Skateboarding Magazine as an intern, answering the phones. At the time, I was working at a restaurant called The Potato Shack. And a guy who worked there started coming in all the time. We started talking. He saw that I uh, surfed and snowboarded and thought that I had a personality that needed to be doing it more and got me a job at Transworld. And once I got to Transworld, I, f I found my people. I was like, oh, people come in at nine or 10 because the waves were good in the morning and they're just expected to get their work done. I'm here for this. Oh, it's going to snow in the mountains. And if we work really hard Monday through Thursday, we can leave early on Friday and go snowboarding. And, and that's actually considered to be part of the job. I'm here for this. And that's how I started. You know, I started, I, I found my tribe and that led to getting jobs at different magazine. At, at, I was at the magazine for a couple of years, but worked in different parts of the magazine. But at the time, you know, there was no X Games. This was in the early 90s. And any events that were happening within these sports, the endemic sports, everyone sort of took a job to put on an event. You didn't hire a production company. You and your friends became the production company, all the way down to who's going to get the mic and announce. But it, it led to, you know, being that guy on the mic. And then when, Madison Avenue saw like there's money over here with these kids doing these weird sports and suddenly extreme burgers and, and this can and you that believe how games. it blew up? I was there the right right place right time first uh, public access channel a little show called Planet X 
some stuff on Fox. MTV was my big break doing mm -hmm. this thing called the MTV Sports and Music Festival. And that's what led to ESPN. And ESPN hired me basically as a sideline reporter. And they'd never had someone like myself who actually knew the athletes, knew the sports, knew the culture, interviewing these guys. Suddenly, they, these guys started like revealing who they were as people. ESPN said, okay, we're going to take you and try and teach you how to be a professional, which for them was like trying to ride like the craziest bull in the rodeo because I, was, I wasn't trying to fit in. I was trying to represent. You want to be your own person. I want to be my own person, and I wanted to represent the tribe that I came from. Yeah. So the idea of like, oh, I'm an ESPN guy now, no. So that meant like drink all night, show up very hungover, but the athletes being like, yeah, dude. And me being like, yeah, great. You're part of it. I You're it. part of it. Yeah. And but is that, so, is that advice, Sal, that you would give to young people? Just like the, the idea that you be yourself, be true to yourself, blaze your own trail. Don't like th those guys, those surf guys that kind of implied that now you were fitting in with their world and you kind of very quickly made it known that no, 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 no. I'm Sal Mazzucala and I am my own person. Is that something that you would say to young people? I would say people always ask me, the number one question that I get in my DMs or emails or that people say on my site is, how can I do what I love? Yeah. And the number one thing I say is, be yourself. People always ask me how to be on camera. I'm like, you, be yourself. you gotta be yourself. And, and bring whatever it is that's unique about you, you. to it. And, and I think that's- No one has what you have. Right. Don't and that's what you have to sell. That's it. That's it. And that's scary. Yeah. Because you got to believe that. And it took me a very long time to get to that place. And then even learning the dance at that corporate level, once it was like, you can't be some rodeo clown out with the athletes at night and then try to be this guy. Like ESPN, at a certain point, they were like, we'll fire your ass. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, you're... So you have to work out where the parameters are. I had to learn how to become a professional. Yeah. That took years. Um... <laughs> But fortunately, I'm still learning actually. But fortunately, I I think I had a skill set that allowed me to get away with murder in the beginning. Yeah. And then once I learned how to capitalize on the natural skill set and actually become a professional, that's when it became fun. Because then it was like, okay, every time I come and do this, yeah, I have an opportunity to be better. Which and I'm sure you still have the same thing today with yourself well you're, you're always striving to want to be better and um, you know I couldn't get work when I first came to America because I was a New Zealander right so you know certainly being white and looking like and talking other, like a like a between your Caribbean accent I had a whole and, thing and going your New on. Zealand they were just like but what they, is they, they didn't they didn't think that a New Zealand accent would work on would American television yeah, so right. I, I lost out on, I and mean, I'd come from working in TV. Works so now, though. It's a different, well, yeah, I mean, I've embraced as I've got older the idea of being different. What I love about you, Sal, is that you are your own guy. And I think what's cool about the team that we have with Albert Lynn, with um, Mariana Vanzella, yourself, we have distinctive voice, voices on National Geographic Explorer. We're all very, we've all come from very different places, different backgrounds, and I love that. Yeah, so, I think it's crazy that they assembled this team. Yeah. It's so cool. Yeah. Because that's not the natural, you know this from yeah. being years in television. We, we're a wonderfully weird squad that are so that different. They're very different that people and audience can actually identify with. Yeah. And they were smart enough to be like, let's not create characters, let's 
Find them. Find them. Yeah. You, you, you spoke about your dad caring so much and being so aware of what's going on in the world. He knew what was going on in Myanmar, even when he was struggling with his own life. Um, you also have a passion for giving back, right? You, what is it that you do to help others, some of the things that you do? We started a, a foundation called Stoked, mm -hmm. a mentoring organization with my dear friend Steve LaRosalier about 12 years ago. Uh, we're based in New York, LA, and now Chicago. We take the principles of, of the sports that we discuss, mm -hmm. surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding, and give at-risk kids an opportunity to experience, experience those activities, um, learn the benefits of falling down and getting back up, having to negotiate a new environment, et cetera, and then applying those things to life. Um, we work with them entrepreneur skills, uh, mentorship. Um, our goal is to have these kids, by the time they've completed four years of being instoked, they know who they are and where they want to be. They graduate high school, 100% graduation rate, um, and many of them go on to college and come back and work with us. And it's been a ton of fun. I sit on the, on the board of the Tony Hawk Foundation. We provide skate parks uh, for communities. We help people lobby their local government, uh, and raise funds, help them with infrastructure to get skate parks built in communities that don't have access. Is, is Tony Hawk also heavily involved in helping others as well? Is, yeah. yeah, I mean, he set up this foundation himself. It was his charge that, you know, the idea that we have, especially in this country, millions of probably, you know, square feet of unused fields and, 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 and parks that get hardly used yeah. for other sports, when a skate park becomes like, a central focus of a community. Yeah, um, it's a it's a safe space. It's a place for kids to come together um, and have some and, purpose and have some purpose and build relationships. And skateboarding is a it's a lifestyle sport. You don't need on a, to be on yeah. a team to do. So I just want to read a couple of these uh, quotes that you've got here. Um, you say, no matter who you are, where you're from, what you look like, there is no box. Love that. You say every day when you turn on the phone, TV. People are trying to huddle you. What, is, what does that mean? They're trying to huddle you into a, a, into a group that you feel like, well, I have to go and listen to that group. Um, that, that's how you identify. They're trying to huddle you in a space that, that that's the only place that you can that's identify. That's the box they're trying that's to put you box. in. Yeah. Okay, so what do you say to people to avoid getting put in that box? Um, to wake up every day and know that there is no box, to, to really believe that, that you don't have a box, that you're not limited by the manner in which society might look at your, you know, your dimensions mm -hmm. of who you are and say, okay, you need to be here and this is, the, this is the place that you exist. Know that you're able to be like, thank you. I enjoy this place. I'm also going to walk across the street and see what it feels like to be over there because I like what's happening there. This coming from a man who has continually blazed his own trail through his whole life, like your dad. Yeah, just just like my dad, and I don't. I, I it's really it's 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 flattering and humbling to think to hear people say that I blazed the trail. Well, you um, have. I mean, you you cut through in places that no one with your background no yeah. has been before, and you are a maverick. Um, there are, you know, people are going to look back and, at what you've achieved in your career and realize, wow, this guy stood up for himself. 
He went against the grain. He wasn't scared to do that. And people will respect you, or do respect you for I respect you for it. And just reading in your background, it's, it's really cool to sit down with you and, and hear you talk about that. And also know that it hasn't come without a lot of pain, too. Yeah. You know, there's been a lot of pain along the way. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Big, big time. This, I, is, uh, this has been fantastic. Yeah, it's great to talk to you. I, I want to talk to you more. And um, I hope you'll come back and you know, maybe we can share some more stories or explore. For Again, sure. Sal Masakala out there in the world telling great stories. For Watch National our show so we get picked up for another season and we can give you more stories. More stories. Please. Sal, I got a couple of questions to end with. First one, a road trip. You can take three people in the car. You can go anywhere. It can be a short journey. You could drive the, the, the length of Africa, but you got three people in the car. Who's in the car with you? Anybody from any time in history? My dad. My dad, my mother, and my brother. I've never, I never got to do uh, a road trip with uh, the three of them. That would be the best road trip ever. So, if you knew that tomorrow was your last day on Earth, what would you do with it? I would book a flight to the place that has presently the biggest waves on Earth, and I would go and stroke into and aim to succeed at riding the biggest wave I've ever ridden in my life. I literally think about that question all the time. Like, if I was given a very short window, I literally would be like, okay, cool. I have to go catch the biggest wave I've ever caught in my life. Because I don't think I've done that yet. That, I don't think I've caught the biggest wave I'm capable of riding yet in my life. Good man. Nice to talk to you. Likewise, man. Thank yeah. you. You can watch this podcast online at philcogan.com. And let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know. You might be my next guest. Don't forget, ticket before you kick it. <laughs>